Hello all, it's Erin from News and Art. Uh, joining us today is Mosa McNeely, interdisciplinary artist, arts educator, editor, spiritual practitioner, and mom. <laughs> Welcome, Mosa. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are a very multifaceted individual, <laughs> and uh, you do and you have done so much. So I would like to maybe start out with your uh, current art practice with Dawa Collective and the interdisciplinary project uh, Sipping Freedom. Yes, so the Dawa project is a very um, meaningful project to me right now. Um, I'll give you a little background about the Dawa Collective. We've regrouped. Uh, the Dawa uh, Collective was originally founded in 1984 mm. by Grace Channer and Busege Bailey. And it's an acronym that means uh, Diasporic African Women Artists. But it has a double meaning because Dawa in the Kiswahili language means medicine. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Grace and Busege saw a need for uh, black women artists to have space to, to come together, to dialogue, to have a sort of a collegial mutual support around their arts practice, to, um, you know, there was no space. There was not even an acknowledgement in the 80s that there was even a need for black space for artists, black artists. It was a... It was a question in the minds of even the, the um, directors of the most progressive artist-run centers were questioning, what do you mean a, a black women arts exhibition? Like, what? What's the need? What's the purpose? You know, so that was the climate then, that we were not only confronted with the erasure of our presence on the scene, but mm -hmm. we had to first convince institutions that we had a right to have space of our own. So uh, in 1989, the Dawa Collective um, produced and curated the first exhibition of black women artists in the history of Canada. Wow. It was called Black Women, When and Where We Enter. And it toured across the country. And so um, last year, uh, a network of artists called Black Women Artists, uh, founded by Anique Jordan, uh, put on an event at the AGO called The Feast. It was an intervention where a 100 black women artists sat down to a meal in the middle of the AGO. And so um, this, this is uh, predominantly new generation artists in this network. And so the advisory committee decided they wanted to link the the gathering to something historical that black women artists had mm -hmm, done in mm -hmm. Canada. So they searched and they found this reference to black women when and where we enter the exhibition, which turned out it was the 30th anniversary wow. of that exhibition. That's amazing. So almost to the day, in fact, the event was late January and mm -hmm. we opened right around that time of year in 1989. And so we contacted the 11 original artists who were in the exhibition and to see who could attend the event and four of us attended uh grace channer busege mm -hmm. bailey zian and myself and um after that event zian and i felt you know compelled to 
regroup the collective and to mount an exhibition project marking that historical mm -hmm. exhibition. So we've been working since, um, since last year, February, we, we started, and uh, we've uh, written grant applications, we've um, reached out to all the artists, eight of the 11 original artists have agreed to participate. That's incredible. Um, we're still trying to reach the other three, um, and we've, uh, we've, we're so thrilled that uh, Andrea Fatona, curator mm -hmm. and professor Andrea Fatona, has agreed to curate so, um, and it's so in line with her work because her curatorial practice is really grounded in uncovering that erased history of black cultural production in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we're currently now um, in process with studio visits individually with, with Andrea and continuing to write, you know, those grant applications to, you know, fulfill our budget for, we have agreement from uh, A Space Gallery mm -hmm. in Toronto, who it will be their 50th anniversary next year. And then we'll be uh, opening there uh, in November of next year. This so. is wonderful. And it's quite exciting. It, it really and is. And it's a beautiful story. Yes, I think it is. So and I can imagine the excitement for all the artists and the opportunities because what you're doing is important and there's really none of this happening. So it's very powerful. Yes, it is. It's a generation of black women artists in this country who I believe have laid a significant foundation or have contributed mm -hmm. to foundation building through the, the, the decades, but yet who have not really uh, been that visible. Yes. and who have uh, encountered pretty crippling systemic barriers over the last 30 years, which we still encounter as black women artists today. But the landscape is quite different now. There's certainly a critical mass and presence of mm -hmm. black women artists in Toronto now, and the new generation artists are very powerful, very clear about their political and racial positioning, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's very exciting to see there has been some evolution. And so I feel as an artist over 50 that I would really, it, it's very important to me for this project to, to give those artists, at least the 11 of us and hopefully more in our generation, that platform to, to be shown in a proper way to get that that visibility and recognition that they may not have enjoyed all of their careers. That's wonderful. And, and I think, you know, you come with such great advantages here. You have your hands in so many things. So as an art educator, uh, working with the TDSB and doing work with the Coco Collective and the Inner City Angels, can you tell us a little bit about um, these projects and experiences and how that's also going to help you in the DAWA project? Well, um, I think that the... The artists involved in the Dawa project, um, most of us have always felt a real commitment to education as well as mm -hmm. our own arts practices. And I would say some of us may say that we really did progress and um, devote more attention to the arts education work, partly because of the barriers we 
you know, experienced as artists trying to move our, our own work forward. But, you know, again, there, there's, there has always been a need and continues to be a need for, um, you know, culturally responsive, black-centered arts education in inner city schools, schools with, with large black student populations. Um, because otherwise they're not feeling, you know, represented by the general curriculum. They're experiencing uh, overt and covert forms of racism from their teachers and other students. And it's, it's traumatic. It, it has an impact over time. And so... Um, Yes, so I feel very, um, it's a very big part of my life's work to serve black children. It has been, always will be. I would love to have more space for my arts practice to flourish, but I will never stop doing the work I do with, with children. And so, you know, the projects that I offer, I draw from African cultural concepts, design, mm -hmm aesthetic modes, uh, art forms, and I, I feel that children of all racial backgrounds not only should be interested, not only deserve to know, but, but you know, benefit from learning about the Black, Caribbean, and African contributions to society. And so, but I really do, and the older I get, the less apologetically black I am and I, <laughs> I deliver yeah. Yeah. because you know I, at one time I would be and I continue to be challenged about making my programs inclusive but I figure you know I don't want to water down the content and you know I know how to deliver in such a way that centers the black kids but lets others feel still welcome if not centered mm -hmm. and what the hell is wrong with that like why can't we do programming where black children feel like they're at the center of the experience so that's 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 how I do it I it's so well put and I agree with everything you said <laughs> and I love that you want to focus on the black children but it's essential it's it's we do have to include everyone because without that education, we can't all work together. And it's come up before too. You can't have, you know, one month of black history and, you know, minimal uh, content exchange where it's not part of your everyday living. So I love how you bring the creative and the education and everyone can um, learn and work with that. And we need more of that in our education system. So I love everything you're doing and I love the way you share all of this. And we Thank hope you. to see more of you and these kinds of projects. Thank you. Um, that being said, um, again, you have your hands in so many things. You also do sacred leadership work. So can you share a little bit about the... Um, you know, Sacred Women's International, Global Leadership Village, and your independent endeavors drew through COVID. Yeah, you know, um, when I, I did my graduate studies at York University, and I was in the environmental studies department, which is quite an anomaly as far as environmental studies goes in universities. It's a very interdisciplinary and self-directed 
program, the, the master's program there. So it was, I was able to um, focus my studies on which I chose black art, performance, and spiritual practice, and try and bring those three um, areas of interest together. And looking at middle passage memory, at black radical imagination, and the sacred. So I, I've always had this interest in my arts practice, in spiritual um, practice, in cosmologies from the continent, indigenous cosmologies, hybrid iconographies. And so, you know, when I finished the degree, working at doing a performance piece, an exhibition that had, that, you know, the cross, the, the, there's like a, it's a hybrid. Is it an installation or is it an altar? Mm -hmm. Is it a performance or is it a ritual? Or is it both? Is it a hybrid of these different? Um, so after I finished the degree, I learned about uh, Sacred Women International. It's an organization based in Toronto. Uh, the founder is Ainania Ayodele. And she offers a, a sacred leadership training program. It's a 10-month process. So I felt like I did my academic masters and this was like my spiritual masters, you right. know. So I did the program with her and it was very um, profound for me. And so after I finished that at the end of 2017, I then started to step into this new identity as a sacred leader. So I participate in ceremony, I lead ceremony, all grounded in African, Caribbean, black, diasporic, spiritual modalities, belief systems, traditions. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of, again, a hybrid. I think I'm drawn to hybridization also because of my racial makeup. I have diverse racial origins. I, I'm multidisciplinary, you know, so I, I think that's part of the black diasporic experience is mm -hmm. this kind of, um, this, this compulsion to pull together fragments and pieces and layers of identity that has been somehow ruptured or fractured and mm -hmm. then so that's always been a theme in my work. Um, so the sacred leadership work, there's now, finally, there seems to be a recognition of the need for it um, with this spike in the visibility of anti-black violence during COVID and the global outrage mm -hmm. about George, George Floyd's murder. Um, so I've been called on to to hold space for black staff members at different organizations who need to have space to unpack, you know, their feelings about this, what, what we've been subjected to. I mean, as people of African descent, I believe when we witness this violence, we experience a kind of a trauma vicariously. And it can be traumatic for our allies as well, but there's a distinct experience mm -hmm. that people of African descent are having in this current climate of anti-black violence. So, you know, I, I see the need. I, I imagine, I know what I need. 
I know I feel called to, you know, go to nature as much as I can, to do solo rituals as much as I can. So I, I just, um, I work with Sacred Women International community members. Global Leadership Village is part of that community as well. They do a lot of wellness work in the community. So with those two entities and myself as an individual, I interface mm-hmm. with both. And I, I, I've off, I'm currently uh, uh, hosting a series of ceremonies f- till the end of the year on the full moons uh, for Black, African, and Caribbean community members in different locations outside of the city, in the city. That's wonderful. And so, um, you know, we need to we need to have healing spaces. We need to. I feel that it's you know for those who resonate with this idea and feel drawn to this kind of spiritual work, it can be very grounding. It can be very healing to be in black space with others to practice some of those African traditions that you may feel disconnected from Mm -hmm. or you may feel so connected to you just need to be in community to, you know, cope from day to day. space to communicate. And I think what we we have uh, an opportunity right now when with this global outrage about anti-black violence to really leverage this uh, um, moment to demand of institutions Mm -hmm. to make true systemic change and structural changes um, in order to address anti-black racism in our society. You Mm -hmm. know, there there was a whole slew of solidarity statements that every organization and institution made right in the heat of that moment uh, shortly after George Floyd was killed. And in my opinion, a solidarity, a public assault solidarity statement is only a publicity stunt unless, unless it's backed up with, with concrete action. So right. that is what, you know, we have to demand at this point, you know, and, and also, you know, in terms of the mourning and the grieving of the loss of black life that we, as part of our healing right now, you know, it, it also um, ties to my, uh, an interdisciplinary project that I'm developing called Sipping Freedom, mm-hmm. which um, it, it, it's from the master's research that I focused on the Middle Passage, which is that that journey across the Atlantic Ocean that was made over that 400 years of forced migration during the slavery, times of slavery. And so my, my arts practice in this project is concerned with mourning and memorializing that history mm-hmm. because there were lives lost in that journey across the ocean that we don't know their names, they didn't have proper burial, and it's in the millions. I mean, there's a estimates between two and twelve million lives that were lost in the ocean. So, um, so that work of memorializing that history now ties to the present in a very real way because we are again mourning the loss of of black life mm-hmm. and it's heightened in its visibility not that it hasn't been going on all along yes. but it's just more visible now so 
I'm hoping to be able to offer that kind of a, a space for folks to mourn when, you know, with this project, an installation space to come to and reflect on that and hopefully have some kind of a catharsis of grief and, and uh, the memorializing can be the way that we can satisfy the grief that we, we feel. Mosa, so well put. Thank you so much for coming and sharing with us. It was wonderful. And everybody, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, feel free to um, join us on Facebook and Instagram on News and Arts, and we will talk to you soon. Take thank care. Thank you.